Thank you, Sarah. Be- beautiful testament of resting in God's love. Uh, the verses uh, Sarah referenced are found in uh, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. They're found in uh, page 750 of Pew Bible, uh, reading and uh, starting in verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. This is the word of the Lord. This is the third and final of a series that we've been going through, really focusing on our theme for this year, the real Well, say it with me. Real people, real life, real love. One more time. Real people, real life, real love. Our emphasis on community this year, and we wanted to resurrect that uh, issue or that topic one more time before uh, year's end, and so we've been enjoying doing that. We've kind of fused that three-part series with three statements I always make when I'm uh, departing up the aisle giving the benediction, by the goodness of God you were born into this world, by the grace of God you have been kept all the day long even until this very hour, and this morning by the love of God fully revealed in the face of of Jesus. I found a quote this week that just fits beautifully with this emphasis that we have had. It's by a Christian author named Glenn Stanton, and if you will look in your order of worship, right under the title of the sermon there, you will see it. I'm going to read it once, then I would love it if you would read it with me the second go-round. We serve a God who created our humanity, weeps at the fall of our humanity, became our humanity, and is redeeming our humanity. Read that with me one time. We serve a God who created our humanity, weeps at the fall of our humanity, became our humanity, and is redeeming our humanity. It really fits wonderfully with what we've been talking about. First of all, God created our humanity. Two weeks ago, we talked about real people, which coincides with the part of the benediction that says, by the goodness of God, you were born into this world. And you remember we talked about why did God create us at all? Why did he create humanity? Why did he create you? And we saw that God, based on Genesis 1, he saw that what he created was so overwhelmingly good that he could not keep it to himself, could not help but share it out of his unconditional love. That's why he made you. He wanted to share it with you. And secondly, this quote says, God weeps at the fall of humanity. Last week we talked about we moved from real people to real life. And we talked about how because of the fall, we live in a fallen world full of of trials and setbacks and pain, and God weeps at that pain, but also, as we noticed last week in 1 Peter chapter 1, God empowers us to press through that pain and journey through the hard times. And I shared that litany uh, that I wrote that we we walked through last week, and I was so appreciative of those of you who, who really appreciated that. Uh, some very respected member of our church from the first service said that, should, that, that litany should be uh, tattooed from head to toe on every one of us, which is a weird image to think about, but I appreciated what she had to say. 
And, and I thought about, as, as Sarah was talking just a minute ago, wasn't that a great word from her? And, and I thought about her because I felt like, oh gosh, that litany really speaks to what she's talking about. If you remember, it kind of had this refrain where I would say, no matter what happens, and you would say some words based on 1 Peter 1. In fact, let me just go through it. It was, no matter what happens, I was chosen to be in God's family. No matter what happens, God is working in my life. No matter what happens, I have grace and peace and abundance. No matter what happens, I have a living hope. No matter what happens, I am safe. No matter what happens, I am glorifying God. No matter what happens, I am being rescued. And finally, no matter what happens, I am being served by prophets and angels. All of that came out of 1 Peter 1, just a powerful, powerful wonderfully packed uh, chapter that says all of those wonderful truths and words of hope for you and me. But now we come to the third and final of this series, and if you look back at the quote there in your order of worship, finally he says, he became our humanity and is redeeming our humanity. Doesn't that sound uh, like the last part of the benediction I always share, and by the love of God fully revealed in the face of Jesus? Now let me say that again, and when was the last time you really pondered this reality of what we call the incarnation by the love of God fully revealed in the face of Jesus. When was the last time we really appreciated the significance of that? What would it take to jolt us again to realize the significance of it? Maybe what happened on June 5th of 1978 up in Canada. A seven-year-old boy named Martin Turgeon slipped off of a wharf and fell into the Prairie River up there in Canada, very slow-moving river, and there were at least a dozen adults who were standing there at the edge of the wharf, none of whom dove in to help him, none of whom dove in to try to rescue Martin Turgeon. They watched him struggle for a few minutes, and then he sank, and then he drowned. Why didn't anyone go in to save him? Well, they knew that just upstream was a plant that used to dump raw sewage right into the river, and the water was dirty dangerous for your health, so nobody jumped in to save Martin Turgeon. Now, I want you to think about that, and I want you to envision God as an onlooker, as if he is standing at at the edge of the wharf of eternity looking down on this particular planet. This particular planet and all of its corruption and, yes, its dirtiness and its contamination and how it can be so bad for anyone's health. And can you not envision him saying, look, I'm not diving into that mess of your life and into your world until you get out of that putrid river and clean yourself off because I am a holy and righteous and fully pure God, so you clean up your act first and then I'll jump in and join you and be there for you. But as Scripture attests, our passage this morning tells us That this is a God who was willing to take the plunge himself. Plunge right into the trials of human sorrow and hardship. Plunge into the mess of your own real life. Plunge into the mess that is you. (laughs) And he says, okay, I'm coming after you. And so the word became flesh and walked among us. You know that word, word in the Greek means logos. It's where you get the word logic. It spoke of reason. It spoke of intellect. Greek philosophers wouldn't have had a problem with John's gospel, at least from verses 1 through 13 at the very beginning there in chapter 1, because it talked about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in their minds, they were thinking, oh, it's talking about that, that ultimate being who is the source of all logic, you know, the one who dictates the world. We understand that. And really, when you think about it, no Jewish scribe or scholar would have had a problem with it either, saying, oh, well, obviously he's referring to Yahweh, who is the Holy One who is the source of all logic. He's rather distant from us. He's 
holy, the word holy, kadosh, means what? Different from, other than, in a sense, far away. But it would have gotten scandalous for any devout Jew or Greek when you got to verse 14, and it said what? The word became, what does it say? The word became what? Flesh and walked among us. Now, that was scandalous. But that's a central claim of John's gospel and all the gospels. He became like us. He lived among us. He came wrapped in flesh. That's where we get the word incarnation. What does that mean? In, the prefix means in. Carnos is where we get the word, what, carnivore? It means literally in the flesh. God wrapped himself in flesh. God in the flesh. Think about that. He became flesh. He became human. And John stresses this, and he selected his words carefully, talking about the Logos. Why? Because the Docetics were familiar with this word Logos. You've got to understand who the Docetics were. They were unorthodox Christians because they denied the humanity of Jesus. They said he could not have come in the flesh. There's no way he would be willing to do such a thing. If you read his epistles, First and Second John, he really goes after the Docetics. In fact, read that. This is why he's emphasizing it here at the beginning of of, of John in John 1. But go to 1 John and 2 John later on. And he's really going after the Docetics who are denying that Jesus came in the flesh. In fact, does anybody know what he calls anyone who says that Jesus did not come in the flesh? Read 1 and 2 John. He calls them antichrists. More than once he says if someone doesn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, they are antichrists. What is he saying? They're against him completely opposite of who he is about, and they believe completely opposite of who he is about. Now, why was, so John, why was John so fired up about this? Because he knew Jesus, hung out with him for three years. Look at 1 John, beginning at verse 1, and he says, that, that person who we saw with our eyes, who we touched with our hands, you know, who we heard with our ears, we testify to the fact that we saw him. He was with us. This is why this is so close to John's heart. Not only that it's, it's correct theology, but it's for the fact that he saw this and saw this firsthand. The Word became flesh, but not just that. It says, the Word became flesh and walked among us. Some paraphrases say, uh, the, uh, the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. Most literally, it says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, what does that mean? Because it's really cool. What was the tabernacle? Do you remember when the Israelites were wandering around for 40 years with Moses, they carried a tabernacle. What was it? It was a portable big tent. And wherever they encamped, they would set up the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, and not everybody could go in there, but inside the tabernacle, you had a place to sacrifice a lamb. And close by, there was a place called uh, the table of bread. And there was bread there that would be offered as sacrifice. And then there was something called a laver or a washstand. It's where someone, before they even entered the tabernacle, had to wash themselves clean. Centuries later, Jesus comes along and says what? I am the lamb. I am the bread of life. I am the water that offers eternal life. You come to realize Jesus himself symbolizes the coming of the tabernacle in human form. He becomes the tabernacle in the flesh, and he became a tabernacle that we could relate to. Like I said, not everybody could go into the tabernacle. In fact, whenever the glory of God filled the tabernacle, you had to back off. Even Moses could not go in there. It would talk about when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and there was light there, or there was a fog there, and you could not go near it. You always had to back off, and you didn't take the tabernacle lightly because it was a holy place. You might remember the story of Nadab and Abihu who wandered in there drunk one time. They went in there very casually and they fell dead. Why? Because that's a holy place. 
It's a holy place. You don't walk into the tabernacle casually. You, if anything, would back off. But now John says, again, remember, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now John uses that same language as it says of Jesus. We saw his glory with our own eyes up close. We were able to approach him, relate with him. He was there right with us in the flesh. Here's the tabernacle in human form. That's why that's so, so beautiful, so symbolic, and so rich when it comes to understanding what it means that he came close for us. And he came close to us no matter how unworthy, how broken, how twisted we are. Isn't it beautiful that he adjusted himself to meet us face to face? He condescended himself, accommodated himself to us. Do you realize what a gift that is for him to meet us face to face like that? In a sense, lowered himself that he would come and meet us. Let me just read this. This is by Dr. Richard Seltzer. He's a surgeon. And he tells of this wonderful moment of transformation that he had in a book called Mortal Lessons. Just listen to this story. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish look. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed, and she will be thus from now on. Oh, the surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek... I had to cut that little nerve, and the woman asks me, will my mouth always be like this? And I have to reply, yes, it always will be so. The nerve has been cut. She nods and is silent. Her young husband is in the room, and he smiles and looks at his wife with a love so absolutely generous that it stuns the surgeon to silence. All at once I know who he is, and I understand and instinctively lower my gaze because one is not bold in an encounter with the divine and the unmindful. The bridegroom bends down to kiss her mouth, and I am so close that I can see how he twists his lips to accommodate hers. And he goes on to say, Once upon a time the God who bent down and took hold of a handful of dust and shaped humanity and breathed life into it stooped down again. And this time it was himself that he reshaped in order to kiss a disfigured earth with his grace and to breathe new hope into the life of the beloved. He showed us in that moment that it is not just the staggering height of God that displays his grandeur. It is how far down he is willing to bend down that fully displays his glory. I love that image of the husband twisting his mouth in order to meet his wife's lips. Think of God condescending himself to accommodate us coming down as far to meet us. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling. He tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But sometimes verse 15 gets overlooked, and I so appreciate it. It says, John testified, this is John the Baptist, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. In other words, he, was, he, he existed long before I did. And that reminds me of something. We need to be like John and testify on his behalf. The fact that he came so far down for you and me into our putrid, polluted world, and yet did that out of love, 
are we not ready to testify for that? We saw the best type of testimony for that earlier when Anna was baptized. I mean, what a beautiful visual symbol of dying to self, being raised to new life in Christ. That's all a public testimony of what Christ has done in Anna's life and in all of ours who follow Christ. But how willing are you to do that? Do you know anybody (laughs) whom you would deem as sort of putrid sometimes? Is there a certain type of person, a certain group of people, or is there someone you know who is so difficult to love? And it's difficult to enter their world because you see them as so corrupt, so wayward, so depraved, so broken, so dirty. And yet look at yourself, first of all. And look at what Jesus did coming so far down for you And for me, my gosh, reread Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather he emptied himself on our behalf. And what did he become? A slave. He came in human form. And what did he do? He suffered and he died, yea, on a cross. Did that for you and me. Do you think the least we can maybe do is even with those people who are the most difficult for us to love, whom we want to judge as so unclean, So aberrant, so abominable even, yet we are called to love them and testify to the love of Jesus even then. And then and only then are we offering the whole gospel as we claim to here at Brookwood. By the love of God, again, fully revealed in the face of Jesus. I say that every Sunday. By the love of God, fully revealed in the face of Jesus. Fully revealed in the face of Jesus. And I know I've shared this before in the Gospel of Luke. There's that poignant. It's really one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture where it says, and he turned his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus was in the upper hinterlands of Israel, but he turned his face way down south toward Jerusalem. What does it mean to turn your face towards someone? Y'all ever heard a choir sing, the Lord bless you and keep you? You know that little benediction? The Lord make his face to shine upon you. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. It's the blessing of Aaron. The Lord uh, bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. That's the fancy King James word. But it's the same word that he just said, face. The Lord lift his face or turn his face toward you. What is the beauty of that? Because in Hebrew thought, ancient Hebrew thought, to turn your face to someone is to make yourself naked before them, is to make yourself vulnerable before them. And here Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem, making his face making himself vulnerable to Jerusalem and what lay there when he gets there for Passion Week, who ultimately died naked on a cross, making himself that, that vulnerable for you and me, stooping that low, accommodating us at that low a point, though we were the ones who deserved it, he accommodated us by dying in that manner. Incredible. He went that far for us, went that far for us. There's a fabulous documentary that I rented the other day, and it's just really cool. It's called G-Man. Has anybody seen G-Man? It's a cool story about a guy named Father Gregory Boyle, and he works in inner city L.A. in the Boyle Heights neighborhood. A lot of gangs there, Hispanic gangs, African-American gangs. He's an Anglo guy, but he's there to minister to them and has made such an incredible impact down there. And he wrote a book recently called Tattoos in the Heart, And he just talks about his ministry to gang members there, trying to get them out of the gang life, trying to get them jobs, trying to get them a faith in Christ as well. And in that book, he tells a story, and I was just very moved by this when I read it. There's a story of a 15-year-old gang member named Rigo, and Rigo was getting ready for a special worship service for incarcerated youth, and Father uh, Gregory was there with him. 
And Father Gregory, for some reason, said, hey, do you think your father might come with us? And this is what Rigo said. No, he's a heroin addict, and he's never really been in my life. He used to always beat me. And Father Gregory asked him, is that really true? And Father Gregory said something snapped inside Rigo at that point as he recalled an image from his childhood. And I'm just going to say it as Rigo said it, as, as it was recounted in the book. He said, I think I was in the fourth grade. I came home, sent home in the middle of the day. When I got home, my dad says, why did they send you home? And because my dad always beat me, I said, if I tell you, do you promise you won't hit me? And he just said, I'm your father. Of course I'm not going to hit you. So I told him. And at this point, Rigo began to cry uncontrollably, just wailing back and forth. And Father Gregory put his arm around the boy, and he finally calmed down. And then Rigo, he said he spoke quietly, but just kind of with blank eyes, kind of in a state of shock as he recalled the pain that followed. And he just said, he beat me with a pipe, with a pipe. And it says, after Rigo composed himself, Father Gregory asked about his mom. And Rigo pointed to a small woman across the room and says, that, said, that's her over there, and there's nobody like her. No one like her. And he paused and said, I've been locked up for a year and a half, and she comes to see me every Sunday. And he said, Father Gregory, do you know how many buses she takes every Sunday to see me? And he started sobbing again, had to catch his breath. And through his sobs, he said, seven buses. She takes seven buses to see me, just to come see me. Imagine that, Father. She came that far to see him. And and just keep in mind, that's a moving story, but think about yourself and how God came to you. God loves us like Rigo's mother loved her son, yea, even more, much, much more. We have a God who took way more than seven buses to arrive at us. He stepped out of eternity and into our reality and all of its brokenness in this world where you and I have been beaten and broken down, not with a pipe, but by many, many other things that this life can throw at you and me. And nevertheless, he entered that world and he exposed himself to the same type of beating and emotional turmoil and rejection and injustice that all of us face at different points. And he felt the brunt of that for you and me experienced and understands our brokenness. And in spite of our sin and our twisted ways and our fickleness, He showed up anyway. In spite of the way that we wound up treating Him, He showed up anyway. And He still does. In spite of how fickle we can be toward Him, how unfaithful we can be toward Him, how in some ways we reject and deny Him and betray Him, yes, betray Him on a regular basis, He still shows up. He came that far, not just to the cross for you and me, but even beyond and is here even now and seeking you out. So next time you spend a little time with him, as we do in just a minute, just recall just how far he came to be with you. Let's do that right now. Let's let's enter into a discipline of meditation. And I want you simply to take a moment and welcome Jesus back. Welcome him back and offer gratitude to him. Give him thanks for coming so far to be with you, to meet you where you are in all of your lowliness and sinfulness.
to meet you in all of your pride and your greed and your lust, to meet you where you are in all of your confusion and disappointment and despair. Welcome him back. How could you go so far to greet us, O oh God? How could you stoop to such a lowly level? How could you break through our sin and see our need? Thank you for your love. We're so limited in our words as far as how to describe it. It's inexpressible. It's unconditional. It's everlasting. It runs so deep. But even words don't really say to us just how deep your love for us is. We can sing amazing love. How can it be? But it's even beyond that. And so, as John says in the following verse, we receive grace upon grace. And we do, oh God, grace upon grace. As you continue to rain down your love upon us, we give you such thanks. I want you to just take one more moment and just in silence, just pray to, pray to Jesus whatever it is you need to pray. Whatever it is you need to get straightened out with him, whatever it is that you need to cry out for him silently. Maybe it's someone you need to pray for. Whatever it is you need to pray for and about, whether it's you or someone else, just take a moment to do that. just a moment. I'm going to be standing at the front, and if you feel led to make some type of public profession of faith, or you wish to be baptized like Anna was, or and you want to make that public, or you want to move your church membership, whatever it might be, you're welcome to come forward if you feel led to do that publicly. Otherwise, in just a moment as we stand and sing, I hope you will stand and sing. As we sing, I stand amazed. I hope you will really be amazed once again at his incredible love for you. Because he loves you in a way that no one else possibly can. He loves you as if you're the only one in the world to love. That's the power and the depth and breadth and height of his love. So Lord, be with us as we stand and sing now and commit ourselves anew to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.